Good morning. How's everybody doing? All right. Well, it is great to be with you this uh, morning as we gather together to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I trust that you uh, all had a wonderful Thanksgiving as you took some time to just rest and relax and count your many blessings that God has poured out over you the past year. And I trust that you didn't eat too much stuff, <laughs> although my trust is not too great in that. But what a blessing it is that uh, you and I live in a country whereby we can gather together and, and just uh, freely remember all that God has done to bless us and to shower his goodness upon us as we gather together with the saints. You know, it's not like this all over the world. There are many places in the world where people aren't able to gather and to be thankful and to praise God for um, his gracious work. And as a result, there are countless brothers and sisters all over the world that are, are being persecuted for their faith. Their very lives are put in danger every time they, they gather to be taught from the Word of God. So I just challenge us to never, never take for granted the great privilege that we have here to be able to worship God freely and to be able to gather together freely to give praises and, and honor to our Lord Jesus Christ. With that, let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer and just ask the Lord to bless our time together. So please pray with me. Dear Gracious Father in Heaven, we do come to you and we thank you so much for the fact that we live in a country where we can worship you freely. And Lord, uh, you have been so kind to each of us. And we thank you for sending Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That has been your greatest act of kindness to us. So Father, may you help us to be a people that live in light of that kindness that you have shown. May you help us to never take for granted the great and awesome work that was accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, may you right now just uh, help us to set aside any distractions, help us to remove any of the, the cares and the burdens that may be pressing down upon us at this moment, Lord, and, and just help us to free our minds so that we might be able to focus in on your word and the truth that it contains and, and how it would call us to live in light of who you are and what you've done. Father, we thank you for this time where we can gather. May you be honored in it, and may our hearts and our minds be actively engaged in hearing from you this morning. Help me, Father, to speak clearly so that you might be understood. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this morning's sermon is entitled, Sinners in the Hands of a Merciful God. But before I get into the sermon, I, I want to expose you to some excerpts from what is perhaps, you know, a little bit better known sermon um, by Jonathan Edwards entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, what, uh, what Edwards did is he expanded on a text that uh, is found in Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-five, a text which reads, Their foot shall slide in due time. And it is in expounding on this text that Edwards paints some of the most unnerving pictures regarding uh, the, the wrath of God. And really his goal behind this sermon was uh, to awaken many of the unconverted people that were coming and being a part of his congregation. And I would say that God uh, used that work to, um, to do a great work in, in many lives. 
And he used that sermon to, to change many lives and to spark a movement that would be known as the Great Awakening. So just kind of sit back and, and listen to little excerpts here and there from uh, what the congregation listened to uh, a few hundred years ago. As Edwards writes this, he says this, The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. And you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty. And there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open. And the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night that you were suffering to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop down into hell. And that everyone that is yet out of Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men and women or middle-aged or young people or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's word and providence. This acceptable year of the Lord, a day of such great favors to some, will doubtless be a day of his remarkable vengeance to others. Men's hearts harden and their guilt increases apace at such a day as this if they neglect their souls. And never was there so great danger of such persons being given up to hardness of heart and blindness of mind. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. 
The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom, haste, and escape for your lives. Look not behind you, escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. End quote. Let me just start off by saying that these words, which were spoken by Jonathan Edwards in 1741 to a congregation in Enfield, Connecticut, are just as true and relevant for today as they were when they were spoken. For every one of you out there that has failed to trust in the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ, understand, please, that your soul is in imminent danger. God's righteous wrath is still upon you. You are still under his judgment. You are still under the law. And you will be judged accordingly. But God has made a way for you to be spared from that. There's a way that you can be spared from his righteous, holy wrath. And that is by simply repenting of your sins and trusting in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Putting your faith in what Christ has done for you. It was Augustine that said that the New Testament lies hidden in the Old and the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. So it's with that in mind that I, I want to ask you to open up your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel twenty four fourteen. <clears throat> you see, Jonathan Edward used Deuteronomy thirty two thirty five to warn the congregation in Enfield to flee from the wrath to come by trusting in Jesus. It is my hope this morning to you second samuel 24:14 to encourage the congregation of burbank to throw themselves upon the mercy of god not only for their initial salvation but also every day that they continue to grow in sanctification so let me offer you just a little bit of background as you are opening up to second samuel 24 for starters, we find in this passage that King David is ordering a census, a basic accounting of all of the, the men that were of military age. And, and really, there's nothing sinful per se in conducting a, a census. In fact, there were times where the Lord explicitly made it clear that he wanted a census to be taken. We see this in Numbers 1-2, Numbers 4-2, and 4-22, and Numbers 26-2. And yet, after the people are numbered and, and Joab comes back and he gives a report to David of all of the, the men that there were in the kingdom, we're told in verse 10 that David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And while you and I are not told explicitly what David's sin actually was, we know it had something to do with the census. But again, a census in and of itself is not sinful, especially when you consider that the Torah actually makes provisions and allows for such a census to be taken. The only difference is it just warns of an impending plague that would come if the census was not carried out in the proper manner and we see this in exodus thirty twelve. so david's sin had to lie in one of two places 
with the first one being the sin of pride. If this is the case, then the whole purpose behind David's insisting upon an actual count of the Israelite males above the age of 20 was for his own boasting. Because really, the greater a number of men, the greater his military prowess. It was almost like a, hey, I wonder how great a king I really am. I wonder how powerful I really am. I know, well, let me count my mighty men. Let me count the numbers that are able to fight so that I can be all into my power, my prowess as a king, as a ruler of a great nation. And let me just pat myself in the back as I do that. If this is the case, then David's sin is clear in the sense that he is moving his trust away from the Lord and he is transferring it to the mass of his mighty warriors. He is moving away from trusting God and trusting in his own military force. No longer is the sweet psalmist of Israel looking to praise the God who had plucked him from the obscurity of tending his father's flocks. Now he is instead looking for his own personal praise. I think you could liken it, this sin could be likened to that of King Nebuchadnezzar, the great king over Babylon who, when he walked one day on the royal roof of his palace and he said this, he said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself has, has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. This is kind of what David would be doing if this is kind of the sin. He's looking over his kingdom and he's forgetting who it is that has put him in charge in that kingdom. And he's saying, let me look at my kingdom. Let me number my people. Let me see how great I truly am. Let me see how this kingdom has flourished under my leadership and let me get some praise for that. I mean, this is quite possibly possible. I mean, it certainly wouldn't be the first time that King David would have forgotten his humble beginnings and rushed arrogantly towards his sin. As much as David was a man that was after God's own heart, he certainly wasn't incapable of being carried away by his own selfish and sinful desires. But there is another option, and that other option is that David failed to carry out the census in the proper manner. And this would make David's sin not a sin of pride, but rather a sin of disobedience, an ignoring of a clear, clear command that God has given instruction as to how something was to be done. If David did not require Joab to have all of the enrolled males pay the half shekel ransom that was required by the Torah, according to Exodus 30, 13 through 16, then he would be in direct disobedience to what God had required. A disobedience, by the way, that brings with it the promise of a plague. So given, giving credence to this option is the fact that on, one sep, on a separate occasion, while having the Ark of the Covenant transported, David had failed to follow another one of God's specific requirements and regulations, whereby the Ark was to be carried by the Levites on the poles that would, slip, that would slide through the holes that were placed in the Ark. But David chose to do it a different way. He chose to transport it on a new on a new cart. Kind of did it his own way and, and ignored what God had called him to do. And as a result of David choosing to do this, he puts a man by the name of Uzzah into a position that he never should have been in. 
And as a result, when Uzzah reaches out in an effort to keep the ark from falling because one of the oxen stumbled and the ark was going to fall, he puts out his hand to keep the ark from falling. A good intention, but a direct violation of God's clear command. It was not to be touched. It was to be carried on poles by Levites. Again, this wouldn't have been the first time that David would have ignored what God had called him to do, clearly. So since the text does not clearly state what David's sin was, other than it has something to do with the census, we are left to wonder. But whether it is the sin of pride or the sin of disobedience, David finds himself in a less than ideal set of circumstances. He finds himself in a rather difficult situation. A situation whereby he will be forced to decide between three very unpleasant consequences. Follow along in in verses 11 through 13 where we read, When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Now, I want you to picture yourself in David's shoes, as it were, and I want you to consider the three options that are before you. I want you to consider them closely because, I mean, if you wanted to, and if David wanted to look at it from a strictly personal standpoint, in other words, which one is going to impact me the least, which one am I going to feel the least... Well, then you would probably choose the seven years of famine. Because, I mean, you're the king. And surely you will be given something to eat before the common folk. I mean, who ever heard of a king starving while his people ate around him? Kings are usually taken care of. After all, they are leading the nation. They have to have food. They have to be strengthened. They have to know how to lead. And so definitely David would not be impacted by a famine to the same degree that he might by some of those other things. I mean, usually if anyone's going to starve, it's not the person in charge. If David were to make his decision strictly from a personal impact perspective, I'm sure he would have gone with the famine. But you know, the problem with a famine is that when food gets scarce, you do have to deal with people. People that are willing to do some pretty horrendous things in order to preserve their lives. I mean, just stop and think about I mean, if people are willing to to pepper spray, punch, kick, whatever else was done this past Black Friday, I think somebody even got shot, right? Just so that they could get some kind of electronic gadget, some special deal on on some gizmo. Just think what they would be willing to do if there was a shortage of food and no relief in sight. I mean, do you think that people might get a little nasty? People might get a little carnal if you were the only thing standing between them and their next meal. There's a people element that is there in the famine that I'm sure David would have thought of. 
Now, David's second choice has to do with fleeing from his foes for three months. Something that wouldn't have been new to David. I mean, David had already experienced the treachery of living as a, a hunted man, first at the hands of Saul for many years, and more recently by his own son Absalom. I mean, David recognized the difficulty associated with war and conflict. He knew what it was like to be pursued. He knew what it was like to be hunted down. He knew the difficulty in that. Beyond that, he knew the difficulty of war. If, if there were to be an invading nation that were to come in, even for three months, he knew that the, the terrors of war. He was a man of bloodshed. He knew what it was like to be in the throes of war. I mean, I'm sure there were images in his mind that, that haunted him for years. Images that enabled him to know the, the, the absolute horror of being in battle. I'm sure he saw the cruelty of man to its fullest. And I'm sure it was etched in his mind very clearly. David knew that to be hotly pursued by his foes, even if only for three months, was not an appealing choice. Man can do some pretty devilish things. And some pretty staggering things. And besides, when you think about the death toll that can come up in, in even a single day's war, the totals can be quite numerous. And David saw all of that. David's third choice had to do with suffering under a plague for three days. Now, if David were to consider nothing other than the amount of time that these events were to last, then it would make sense for him to choose this option because after all, it's it's only three days. And then guess what? It's, it's over. It's done. Three days, we're good. But again, the only problem with that is that the plague can wipe people out in incredible numbers. I mean, consider the devastation that the Lord had caused by the way of a plague in, in very short periods of time. Numbers 25.9 tells us that 24,000 people died by the plague that was brought on when the Israelites joined themselves with the Baal of Peor. Were it not for the zeal of Phineas, many more would have died. In Numbers 16.42, we're told that 14,700 people died of the plague and would have been more, more if Moses wouldn't have had Aaron intercede for the people through the offering of incense. Plagues, especially those that are sent by God in some form of a judgment, can produce massive deaths in short periods of time. And while the time frames are short, the death tolls can be incredibly high. And the other thing along the lines of a plague, there would be no guarantee that David would be spared from this form of judgment. I mean, if David were to choose the plague, he could find himself suffering its terrible effects just as easily as anyone else. He could be somebody who dies in the midst of the plague. So you're David, and you're faced with these unappealing choices. What do you do? Well, David does the wisest thing that anyone ever could do. We're told that he throws himself and the nation of Israel into the hands of God. Listen to 2 Samuel twenty four fourteen, where it says this. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. See, David knew from experience that the Lord would be far more merciful than any man ever could be. 
He had tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and therefore he sought refuge in him. It was the mercy of God that enabled David to remain as king, even based off of his moral failure with Bathsheba, even based off of the fact that he tried to cover that up through the killing of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. God's mercy was indeed great upon David in that situation. In his systematic theology work, Wayne Grudem states that God's mercy means God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. Without question, King David found himself in great, great distress. And thus, he was a man that was in dire need of God's mercy. And you know, brothers and sisters, God is a God who is rich in mercy. Is he not? Scriptures speak clearly to this. They're full of numerous declarations concerning this attribute of God. In the ESV translation of 1 Chronicles 16.34, it says this, The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In the New King James Version of Psalm 103, 8-14, we are told, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You know, there is an erroneous thought that is held by many in the church today that God is different somehow, that the God that is found in the Old Testament is somehow different from the God that is found in the New. But A.W. Tozer rightly states this. He says, Wherever and whenever God appears to men, He acts like Himself. Whether in the Garden of Eden or the Garden of Gethsemane, God is merciful as well as just. He has always dealt in mercy with mankind and will always deal in justice when His mercy is despised. Thus He did in antediluvian time. Thus when Christ walked among men. Thus He is doing today and will continue always to do for no other reason than that He is God. If we could remember that the divine mercy is not a temporary mood but an attribute of God's eternal being, we would no longer fear that it will some, someday cease to be. End quote. The person who is able to embrace this glorious truth, the person that is able to understand that God is indeed a God of mercy, is a person who will be, be set free from the carrying around of a burden that is impossible for them to bear. As Christians, the truth of God's mercy is truly liberating. It is truly freeing. It enables us to walk in light of the fact that our sins are no longer held against us. God, in His infinite mercy, has made a way for our sins to be dealt with once and for all. This is what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. He has dealt 
with our sins. He has poured out his mercy upon us so that you and I are no longer under God's wrath, but now we are under his mercy. You're under his grace. And as such, we live as new creatures in that. Through faith in Christ, the guilt and the shame of sin are done away with. No longer does God look at us with wrath. No longer does God look at us with disdain. Instead, we are viewed as children, as joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is all possible because in faith, We have trusted in the merciful provision of God. Brothers and sisters, like David, you and I need to be a people that are continually falling into the hands of a God whose mercies are indeed great. This does not mean that we are to glory in our sin or to continue on in sin or that we are to to treat sin lightly. Paul makes this clear in Romans 6, 1 and 2, and he writes this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? To willfully continue in our sin would only show that you and I have not really understood the magnitude of God's mercy. To find our sin more pleasurable to us than God is a red flag that should move each and every one of us to examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith, just like 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us to. This also doesn't mean that you and I will never suffer discipline, that you and I will never suffer consequences for our sin. The Bible's very clear that God disciplines those whom He loves. And if we are His children... He will discipline us in an effort to get us back on the right track, to get us where we belong, to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. This is what he does. We are not being disciplined out of wrath. God is not sitting there pouring out his wrath because we have chosen to sin. No, he is pouring out discipline on us out of love and mercy to guide and to direct us to get us back to where we will be safe. And right within his his will. What this means is that you and I need to maintain a proper focus on the mercy of God so that we don't find ourselves, brothers and sisters of Calvary, slipping into some type of works righteousness whereby we are somehow trying to be good enough. Do you ever find yourself doing that? You know what? If I just read my Bible every day, if I just spent 30 minutes in prayer every day, if I just did this, if I just did that, then God would be happy with me. Then God would be pleased with me. Then I would somehow be good enough to stand before God and I would be able to say, God, look at what I have done. Isn't this wonderful? Aren't you happy with me? Some of us can fall into that trap if we're not careful. We can fall into this works righteousness whereby we're trying to do all of these things so that God will look at us and and say, yes, that's why I saved you. And again, I'm not opposed to us reading our Bibles. I'm not opposed to us praying. 
These are good things. These are things that we should be doing. I'm just trying to get us to realize that those things, doing those things, are not going to make us right with God. The only thing that is going to make you right with God is Jesus Christ and your faith in what he has accomplished on the cross on your behalf. That is it. Yes, read your Bible. Yes, pray. But don't think that those things in and of themselves are going to put you in a right standing before God that you can say, look, God, look at what I have done. Because the moment you do that, your relationship with the Lord will be one of drudgery. There'll be no joy in it. There'll be no peace. It'll be a works-driven relationship to where you will never measure up. You will never be enough because we can't be. You and I aren't good enough. You and I can't do it on our own. And for some of you, I'm sorry to, to bust your bubble of yourself, but you know what? You need to hear it. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. Nobody's good enough. We need mercy. And that's exactly why Jesus Christ came. The moment you try to become acceptable to God or to in some way earn his acceptance, you are fighting a losing battle. In Luke 17, 10, we're told that even when we have done all the things that we are commanded to do, we are still unworthy slaves. Isaiah 64, 6 reminds us that our good works are but filthy rags to the Lord. So what makes us think that even if we do all of the things that are commanded of us to do, we will become anything more than an unworthy slave? What makes us think that if we offer up enough filthy rags, that those rags will somehow put us in a better standing with God? Too many believers within the church are living like sinners in the hands of an angry God. They're living as if God is just waiting for them to mess up so that he can pour out their, his wrath upon them. And as a result, many within the church are lacking the joy. They're lacking the peace that come from understanding that we as believers are sinners in the hands of a merciful God. This is what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. This is what he has done. And this is what we must embrace. Here's what one early Christian said. He's, he, he says this, Oh, the surpassing kindness and love of God. He did not hate us or reject us or bear a grudge against us. Instead, he was patient and forbearing. In his mercy, he took upon himself our sins. He himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous man, while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. It is the kindness of God that stirs us to repentance, according to Romans 2.4. It is the love of Christ that controls us. 
and thereby motivates us to live our lives out of gratitude for everything that God has done on our behalf. And it is nothing but the mercy of God that puts us in right standing with our Heavenly Father. Let us never forget that it was on account of God's mercy that Christ was sent. Let us never forget that it was on account of God's mercy that it was well-pleasing for the Father to crush the Son. Let us never forget that it was on account of God's mercy that the just died for the unjust. These truths are meant to encourage us in light of our failures. And really, if the truth be told, each and every one of us in this building has our share of failures. Do we not? Is there anybody that can stand up here and say, I have kept everything perfectly? Can anybody say they've even done that today? We are failures. We are sinners. Some of you may find yourself in the grip of an addiction. Maybe it's with alcohol, drugs, pornography, whatever it may be. You're in its grip. You've tried everything and you just can't seem to overcome it. The lure for you is too strong, the temptation too great. Can I encourage you this morning to throw yourself into the hands of a merciful God? Some of you may be struggling financially. You've lost your job or you're doing everything that you you can to find work, but for whatever reason, it, it is just not happening. And as a result, you're about to or you already have lost everything. Your life is falling apart. Your financial picture is bleak dismal you're confused scared some of you maybe even a little angry can I encourage you this morning to throw yourself into the hands of a merciful God others of you out there are struggling in your marriage you've been trying really hard to make things work but it's just not happening you and your spouse are, are, are both miserable, both ready to call it quits. But you know that's not what God would have you do. So you just kind of gut it out. No joy in it. Can I encourage you this morning to throw yourself into the hands of a merciful God? And still others about, you know, out there, are, for all intents and purposes, you're doing great. I mean, you have a spouse that loves you. Your kids are, are, are obedient. They're not getting into too much trouble. You're reading your Bible every day. You're spending at least 30 minutes in prayer. And yet, if the truth be told, there's something missing. Those things have just become a habit. There's no joy in them. There's no praising of God for them. Can I encourage you this morning to throw yourself into the hands of a merciful God? 
Each of us comes here this morning with different circumstances weighing on us. For some of us, they are circumstances that we've brought upon ourselves, poor choices we've made. For others, our circumstances are what they are through no fault of our own. Whatever your case may be, let me remind you that God's mercy is great. And the more that you and I are able to contemplate the greatness of His mercy, the more filled with gratitude we will become. And the more filled you and I become with gratitude, the more we will delight in living for God and for His glory. You know, I love David's response to the prophet Gad's inquiry as to which of the three options he will choose. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great. Like us, David wasn't a perfect man, but he did seek to serve a perfect God. And even though David's sin had put him in a rather tough spot, he still knew that it was always best to entrust himself and his people to the hands of a merciful God. As the story plays out, God sends a plague that wipes out some 70,000 men on the very first day. But just as the angel is about to stretch out his hand against Jerusalem to cause further destruction, God steps in and he says, It is enough. Stop. Stop there. It's enough. God's mercy prevented even more destruction from coming upon the nation as a whole. One could only imagine what the death toll would have been if this plague would have continued for all three days. Devastating. But instead, God sends Gad with another message to have David build an altar on the threshing floor of a man named Aranaha. Aranahu, Arana. Somebody told me how to pronounce it. I forgot already. Arana. It's Arana. That's it. All right. He was a Jebusite. So David immediately obeys the word from God and he goes to secure the land from Aranaha. Aranaha. Whatever. Who offers to him? He offers to him the oxen. He offers to him the wood for the for for the offering to the Lord. But David David refuses, stating that he would not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost him nothing. David wanted the sacrifice to to mean something. And you know, despite his shortcomings, David was a man that knew he knew God. And because he knew God, he loved God. He loved God. And it was his knowledge of God that gave him the confidence to entrust him and his kingdom to the hand of a merciful God. Even in light of his having sinned. And this is something that, that each of us would do well to remember when we find ourselves falling short yet again. God disciplines those whom he loves. And while that discipline is not always fun, it is always for our good to help us to become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God's discipline is not his wrath. It is his correction to his children who have been showered with his mercy. So therefore, congregation of Burbank, if you are in Christ, realize that you are no longer sinners in the hands of an angry God. 
but instead you are sinners in the hands of a merciful God. Embrace that. Praise God for that. Live in light of that great truth. But if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, then I want you to understand that God's anger is still resting upon you. You are still a sinner in the hand of an angry God, a God whose anger is justified, a God whose anger is holy. So I plead with you, I beg of you this morning, if you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, I beg of you to do that now, to turn from your sin and to turn to a God who is rich in mercy and grace. Acts 4.12 tells us that Jesus is the only way. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This is the truth of the gospel. This is how we move out of the hands of, a, of an angry God and into the hands of a merciful God. I'm going to close us in a word of prayer and then we're going to have Tim Adams and his team come on up and close us in a, word, in a, close us in a song. So let's pray and come before our gracious God. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you and we thank you so much for all that you have done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your great mercy. We thank you that even despite our, our sin, you have poured out your love upon us through your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, may you help us to live as a people that are just filled with gratitude as we contemplate your great work towards us, your great mercy. Father, may you help us to break out from the the performance treadmill whereby we, we try to earn your favor. But instead, Father, may we live our lives in obedience because of the favor you have already poured out on us, not in an effort to seek it ourselves. Lord, you are good. May we, may we represent you well as our hearts contemplate your great mercy. May you watch over your congregation here in Burbank. And Lord, may you encourage them and strengthen them to throw themselves into the hands of a merciful God. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.